The date, January 1st, 2040. That's 7,166 days from today. The setting, old school. Perhaps it's Radio City Music Hall, or maybe the Bickman Theater on New York's Upper West Side. At the lip of the stage, in front of a live audience, with millions beamed in from all over the world, a gentleman named Jeff Wall stands front and center. Jeff Wall takes a deep breath. Holding an envelope in his left hand, he opens it. When he opened up the envelope and he says, the winner of the $10 million Future of Work prize goes to, you're gonna have to stay tuned to find out. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. My guest this evening is Jeff Wald. Before I get into Jeff's introduction, I do wanna state that what you're about to hear, and I will quote from Jeff, is behind every exit and glowing write-up are the stories you haven't heard. Scratch the surface and you'll reveal what everyone is leaving out, what is lingering and what is unsaid. Jeff, welcome to A Climb to the Top. Thank you so much for having me. That was an amazing open. I'm super excited to be here. Well, thank you very much. And it's great to be here. Let me give the audience our, uh, your bio. Jeff, although he began his career in finance, uh, he went on to venture capital. And when I think about Jeff's contribution to the world, he is a quintessential serial entrepreneur. And if we look at what he does today, he is the founder and he is the president of a company called Work Market, which is an ADP company. He is also the author of a phenomenal book that will be released on June 2nd called The End of Jobs, The Rise of the Agile Company and the On-Demand Worker. Jeff, when I think of you, and I think this is probably the best starting point, I think of the quote that is attributed to either Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln, which says, success is going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. Is that you? Well, certainly the failure to failure part has been. Um, but yeah, look, I, every time I talk with entrepreneurs uh, and anybody that's failed, it's this notion you got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep going. And so I don't pretend that you know the sale of Work Market to ADP was some amazing you know journey, and I was able to do it all on my own and able to do it without the experiences that led me there. And the experiences that led me there were a lot of failure. Before we get into the failure and the backstory, uh, I, I want to tell our listeners that this is, an in, this is a unique format of what we're doing today. When I read Jeff's book and I looked at Jeff's bio, it, it seemed that 27 minutes in a radio format is not going to do it justice. And particularly in light of the fact that Jeff's book is going to be released soon. I remember when I was an author, I was on 77 WABC with a, on a radio show called Mind Your Business, which was at the release of my book, and I wanted to be able to give that back to Jeff. So for everyone listening live for the next 27 minutes, we are going to do part one. For the listeners who want to stay on, go to my YouTube channel and go to chuckgarcia.com. You will hear and see the entire episode because we're going to devote part two solely to the book. What is it? Why did Jeff write it? And who did he write it for? Jeff, let's get into your background then. Before we get into the entrepreneurship, tell us where professionally, where it began. Uh, professionally, I began at J.P. Morgan. You know, I had the pleasure of being a little investment banker in the mergers and acquisitions group. That is to say, working 100, and 100 to 100 to 110 hours per week, uh, seven days a week. I uh, didn't take a vacation for four years and you just kind of work nonstop. And it was an amazing grounding in work ethic in perseverance and a general introduction to business uh, that I am unbelievably grateful for. At the time that you went into investment banking, were you looking to the future to become the serial entrepreneur? No. You know, look, to be honest, Chuck, I became an investment banker because that's what people were doing out of undergrad. And so people were either becoming management consultants or investment bankers. I, I actually didn't really understand fully what I was getting into. I knew it was a difficult job, 
and I knew it was a coveted job. So I thought, okay, I, I guess that's where I'm supposed to go. Right. And that's what people do. But you continued on and it took you to Boston. You went to Harvard to business school. How come? Uh, you know, I was super fortunate with my career at J.P. Morgan. I uh, had a lot of very senior people that were looking after me. And they looked after me because I was the guy that got things done. They knew Jeff Wald would go through a wall. And no matter what, he's going to get this project done. And because of that, they looked after my career. And I was promoted from an analyst to an associate. The associate role is traditionally what you get when you come out of business school. And the general idea was the people we promote, analysts to associate, won't go to business school, they'll continue on. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, okay, this is amazing, but there is one place I've always wanted to go. And I applied only to the one business school, which as I was on my way back to my apartment on the day the mail came, I thought, this was a huge mistake. Why didn't I apply <laughs> to more than one school? And Am I crazy? <laughs> Yeah, I remember opening up that envelope and just shaking, and I got in, and I just fell to my knees crying, because um, it's it's such an amazing institution for so many reasons, and I just felt so blessed to have the opportunity to go there. Yet afterwards, your path changed. You didn't go back to investment banking. I know you went into venture capitalist, but this is, as I read your background, this is where I believe your transformation occurred. You yes. had a different idea about what you wanted your career to go. Walk us through it. What happened? So my boss at the time, he kind of called me into his office to admonish me. And he said, look, Jeff, every time we're in meetings with entrepreneurs, you are fawning over them, telling them how amazing they are, how they're changing the world. And you have to stop this. You know, we have to negotiate with these people. You can't just tell them that they're the best thing ever. I'm like, but they are. They're changing America. This is what makes the capitalist system great. They're taking risks. He goes, look, if you like it so much, go and do it why are you doing what you're doing? And I thought, why am I doing what I'm doing? I should start a company. And so it wasn't, you know, for another year and a half that I eventually started my first business. But that is what started me on the journey of thinking about that. And you were changing your mindset or were you adding on to where you thought you were on this climb of yours? You know, I, I wish I could attribute it to a thought out plan that I was going to go, all right, I'll do this step, then this step, then this step. And, and the truth is, Chuck, it, it wasn't. You know, this was a, hey, I think this is the right opportunity for me now, right? It was a series of decision points along that climb that determined my path, not a predetermined course. Right. And so as I sat there and thought, all right, I'm going to start a business, you know, I still was working at the firm and I was meeting with entrepreneurs and I met one that he and I just became fast friends and we started talking about his business and over the course of a year of he and I going back and forth, I thought, this is it. This is the one. And we were so enthusiastic about it. We funded it ourselves. Uh, for him, that was, you know, kind of a walk in the park. For me, it was basically everything I had and that business failed. And that was certainly not a predetermined part of my journey to be basically bankrupt at 32. And I suspect at Harvard Business School, they didn't teach you how to go bankrupt. They taught you quite the opposite. They do teach you quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, it is, you know, I, I wrote an article once called, they didn't teach me to plunge the toilets at Harvard. Because being an entrepreneur means doing everything yourself. And they teach you a huge number of things. And it's an amazing place. But uh, it's the network that you get there that I think is the most powerful. Indeed. Thing. But here you were at 32. Um, tough time. You thought, oh, my God, I've got the world ahead of me. What was the basis of that failure? The basis of the failure was the two co-founders. There were me and two other people. The two of them were not getting along. And a mistake that I still, quite frankly, ruminate on. You'd think at this point with the unbelievable fortune that I've had that I would have let this go. I haven't. Uh, but the two of them kept fighting and I kept trying to bridge their gaps. They kept trying to say, no, no, we can all do this together. Let's all, we're a little family. We can get through this together. And that was a mistake. I should have, right when they became irreconcilable, instead of trying to fix them, if I had cut one of them out right then and there, they would have done it. Whereas six months later, when I finally said, all right, well, one of you has to go, they had both dug their heels in and neither one of them wanted to go. And neither one of them wanted to give a thing to the other. And therefore, the company had to get shut down. 
that is quite a lesson in itself. Was, was the idea sound, yet the foundation of the people around the idea? Is that what caused the conflict? The idea was incredibly sound, and I have data to prove that, and as much as three years later, we restarted the same idea, and we had a successful exit of it. And so if we had not lost those three years, it would have been a much bigger outcome. Right. Uh, the idea was sound. It was simply interpersonal conflict between these two people, both brilliant, both super driven, but just unable to compromise and see each other's point of view. And what did you learn about yourself as you were working through this? Well, I will tell you one of the things that I ruminate on and get very upset with myself about is my insecurity to have stepped into the role and just said, all right, I'm in charge now. The two of you are abandoning your responsibilities. And I was afraid, Chuck, I, I was just afraid. I was afraid to do that. The reason I wanted to keep everyone together is that then there were three of us doing this together. I could have at any point said, all right, you're both out. I, I'm going to do it. And I, I just, I wasn't ready to do that. Right. You know, for, internally, I wasn't ready to do it. Yet that didn't lessen your spirit or desire to continue to ignite the entrepreneur in you. <laughs> you went on, hey, I've learned it all. Now I'm going to go succeed. You're well, still on the mountain. What happened? You know, I will tell you, the most difficult mountain to climb is the internal mountain. Yep. And so, you know, when that company went under, I didn't leave my apartment for a month. Kind of reminiscent, of course, of what we're going, all going through now. Right. Uh, but that was not because of some horrific pandemic. That was because of depression. I just, I was so down in the dumps about having lost everything. And to your point, you know, you go to all these wonderful schools and you work at all these wonderful firms and all you hear all the time is you're going to be great. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And then all of a sudden you're looking around and you get the call from your mom. Do you need to move back home? And one, that's a wonderful call to get in as much as we should all be so fortunate to have that kind of support system. Right. But that is, I mean, that was heartbreaking for me. And I just thought, you know, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to pull through this. What did you do to pull yourself up from your bootstraps? What happened? You know, it, it just got to a point and there were some friends that called that just said, you know, what are you doing? I mean, it was, it was you know, a mini intervention. You know, my best friends from business school were just like, all right, man, look, you took it on the chin. Take your lumps, get back in the game. Let's go. Okay. And I thought, okay, I got to do cool. that. Somebody external said, you've been knocked Suck down. It Suck it up. You got up. Yeah. But what happened along the way? Next startup. So look, the next startup was actually the same idea really captained by two new founders and then myself and one of the co-founders from the original in the backseat. So I am considered a founder of that company, but it was really the other two driving, uh, driving the bus. And that, found, that company actually had a successful outcome. You know, it got sold to a company called Buddy Media for a good amount of money. And then Buddy got bought very soon after by Salesforce for a huge amount of money. And it, it ended up working. And so what was interesting in my journey is that for the longest time, I would say this. I would say, look, I founded this company called Spinback and through various twists and turns, it got sold. Mm -hmm. I would never say, hey, I founded this company called Spinback. It failed miserably. I got super you know, bummed out and bankrupt. And then it took me two years to kind of build myself back up. And then you know, two other guys restarted it and I helped them a lot you know, and really helped them start the business, but then they sold it. I, I would never say that, right. right? I just erased from my narrative the failure because I really wasn't ready to deal with it publicly. Right. There were other startups along the way that led you to work market. Yes. Were the stories had the common threads or were there different lessons before you, you founded work market? I would say the only common threads are my own insecurities and kind of pushing myself forward and, you know, just getting myself through the hump of trying to, of being the leader that I wanted to be, being the person I wanted to be. Right. And so in 2010, when we founded Work Market, um, I was really ready for this journey. And this journey has been an incredible, incredible road. 
I want to get to that in just a second. Let me pause for a station identification. You are listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on 77WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. My guest this evening is Jeff Wald. Jeff, you talk a lot, certainly in other venues where you've appeared about vulnerability, and you talk about failure, and you state that vulnerability is personal, failure is not which I really appreciate, but you also state something and you talk about success, ultra success, mega success, what is celebrated. Can you tell the audience about an interesting point of view on the definition of that success and why we tend to celebrate the mega as opposed to the things that did succeed? Well, that is that is a great question that runs, I think, very deep into, you know, celebrity culture and the way that our societies evolved in sound bites and things like that. But I do think that there is a counterculture. And I think that uh, Brene Brown and a bunch of other people have kind of let it. Uh, you see a lot of leaders now talk about their vulnerability. You see a lot of people trying to build trust across their organization. And, and this, to me, was the point of saying, Look, I'm not being vulnerable when I'm telling you about Spinback's failure. That's not vulnerability. I've went on, I've had a number of other very big startup uh, successes and outcomes and exits. And so for me to talk about something in the past and how I was depressed, that's not vulnerability. That doesn't make me vulnerable. What makes me vulnerable is talking about the fact that I still have some of those insecurities, that I still have some of those doubts. And those are things I still struggle with that is opening myself up. And that is something that I think if you talked to, you know, the hundreds of people on the work market journey, they would identify as a key aspect of my leadership is me talking about things that I am currently struggling with. That's interesting because so many people are afraid to put it out there for fear of judgment. Of course. Fear of failure itself. Yet what you're doing takes a lot of courage, does it not? I think so. It certainly took a lot of courage to take these first steps. I was definitely afraid of doing these things. Uh, but, you know, that is strength. You know, moving forward, that is courage. Moving forward, even though you are afraid to do it. Correct. And so I will tell you, the reaction has been great. You know, I put something up on ADP's internal uh, blog post. ADP's got 60,000 employees. And I talked about, you know, being concerned about some of these uh, things that I still struggle with. I talked about past, you know, periods of being very, very bummed out, depressed, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And the people that came forward and said, you know, your article really helped me get through. I've been struggling with the same things. I mean, thousands of my colleagues were, you know, interacting with this blog post, emailing me and talking. And knowing that you're able to help people like that has been a, a wonderful part of my journey. Indeed, because I think society has this tremendous false expectation about the need to be perfect, the need to get it all right. Yet what your story is so relatable to the people who feel inside, they're just burning, trying to come to terms with the fact that they're not perfect. And you're telling them it's okay not to be okay. One of my favorite quotes about leadership is that your job as a leader is not to have the answers. It's to help your team find the answers. Indeed. And I think a lot of people view leadership and think they got into their role because they have, they were the smartest one. Right. That is typically what happens, right? The best performer gets promoted up and then promoted up. Yeah. And the idea is, well, you got promoted because you know the most. Maybe, maybe, but as you continue to get promoted up, there is no world in which you will know everything and have every answer. And if you are not taking advantage of all the talents of the diverse set of people you have assembled as your team, then you cannot possibly hope to find the best answers. It is literally, you know, eight minds are much better than one. And if you think your job is to have the answers, then the only mind you're using is your own, and you are not increasing your probability of success. Indeed. In fact, J Jack Wel Welch talked about in his autobiography that the smartest guy in the room is not the one with the answers, but it's the guy asking the right questions. Sure. That, that's, that's channeling the inner Einstein. I'd like you then to talk about work market. Let's, let's get to all of these things that led you there and you being the guy that either shows vulnerability or the guy that asks the right questions. What is it? What do you do? Mm -hmm. And 
what do you take with you based on all of your lessons? WorkMarket is an enterprise software platform that enables corporations to organize, manage, and pay their freelancers. We raised about $70 million in venture from Union Square Ventures, SoftBank, and a few others. And in 2018, we sold the company to ADP. It was a great outcome, a great exit. My team made money. Our investors made money. It was a great, great for everybody. I will tell you that there were many, many ups and downs through the work market journey. And, you know, when I think about the luck that we had, when I think about the partners we had, the team members we had, those are the people that got the ball over the finish line. You know, was I, you know, did I get to be the quarterback of that team? I did. But, you know, it, it, football is the right analogy, right? The quarterback on his own is not doing the job, is not putting points on the board. We had an amazing group of investors. We had an amazing, ridiculously amazing group of uh, colleagues at all levels of that organization. And if I wasn't able to be vulnerable and to tap in to all the collective knowledge, wisdom, capabilities of the hundreds of people that work for work market, we never would have gotten to the outcome we got. There are many people that are listening here. We have several thousand listeners, and I would bet a large percentage of them aspire to do a startup and to become the CEO and to climb to the top. What advice do you give them who, who, who may have similar educational background and similar aspirations? They were sitting right next to me. What would you say? So, you know, whenever I talk to entrepreneurs, would-be entrepreneurs, I will tell them you have to be ready in three ways. You have to be ready physically, financially, and mentally. Physically, in as much as it's back to 18 hours a day, seven days a week, yeah. right? Like, there is no vacation. That's not a thing. Um, financially, in as much as, look, you may not get a salary for the next few years. That is not to say that you shouldn't do it if you don't have a large savings or family that you can support you. You're just not increasing your probabilities of success, okay. right? Every dollar that goes into that company that is not paying the engineers that are building the code, if it's a tech startup or whatever the product is, is a dollar that is not optimally spent. It may still be well spent, it's just not optimally spent, in my opinion. And the last is mentally. You know, a lot of people don't appreciate the mental ups and downs of a startup. You know, one day you are 100% convinced that you are building the greatest thing in the world and you're going to sell it for billions of dollars and you're going to have your own little private island. You're going to wave to Richard Branson, what's up, Richard? <laughs> and then literally the next day, you are going to think, oh my God, this is never going to work. <laughs> We've just wasted all this time and money. And that up and down is really, really difficult. And that brings me to the characteristics of an entrepreneur that I always talk about. And the first and foremost is perseverance. You, you have to push through all that. You have to find a way to make it work because it is on you, right? This was the point of my Harvard didn't teach me to plunge the toilet. I can't tell you the number of times that I had to put a bandana around my nose and mouth, which we're all used to now, and go into a very disgusting bathroom and a very disgusting office because that's all we could really afford and plunge the toilet because if I didn't do it, nobody else would. There was no super to call. There was no service that we could afford. I had to go do it. And if I'm not plunging the toilet, then my team can't go to the bathroom and then we're not gonna be that productive. Yeah. And so sometimes it was the most important thing I would do on any given day was plunge the toilet. And you're, well, you're talking about mind, body, spirit, and you're leading by example for others to follow your, your mind, body, spirit. But there's something that you carry in your mindset, and I wonder if it trickles down. And that's talk about being knocked down and getting back up. Talk about that because that, that and, and I want you to tie that to founder's syndrome, the things you found that trap the mind of the founder, recognizing you never know when you're going to get hit by a bus. How do you communicate that to your employees at work market? So I will tell people that, you know, the key to success in startup life, and I would say just in life in general, is getting knocked down seven times and getting up eight. It's a very common saying in, uh, in the startup community. And I, I love it for so many reasons. You know, one is you will get knocked down again and again and again. So the fact that there's a number in there 
is evocative of the fact that you will get knocked down a number of times. And the key is then to pick yourself back up, right? There is nobody that's going to stand over you and give you that hand and pick you up and get you, get you back up, get you over the wall, whatever it is. You are picking yourself back up. And the other reason I love it is that it's just mathematically incorrect because if I got knocked down seven times, I should get up seven times unless it's thought that I started down in the dirt, which you don't. You do start on your two feet and you start your journey one step at a time. Yeah. Yet there must be portion of your leadership style that every time you make a mistake, what do you do when you make it? Oh, you got to own it. I mean, my gosh, the number of times where we release code and then the customers all hated it. And I would just be like, guys, this is on me. Roll back, roll it all back. I made this decision. It was wrong. And giving people the comfort to understand that you can make a mistake because everything we're doing as a startup is a mistake. You know, one of the things that I would always say as an entrepreneur, uh, sorry, as a venture capitalist, is I would look at someone's business plan and say, look, the only thing I'm 100% sure of is this business plan is completely wrong. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where it's wrong. I don't know how it's wrong, but it is 100% wrong. All I can do is bet on your ability to constantly adapt. Right. And to do that adapting, you need to be listening to your team, to the market, to your investors, advisors, vendors. They are all have all of this data that is going to help you to make a better decision because you're going to make mistakes again and again and again. And not only do you have to be comfortable making those mistakes, you have to make sure that your team is comfortable making those mistakes because if they're afraid to make a mistake, you are not pushing the envelope. And that is the only way to be successful in startup world is to push that envelope and to create something new. And anybody that thinks they can create something new without messing up a few times, you are completely incorrect. Jeff, I'd like to conclude this portion of the radio show before we switch over to part two. To our listeners, I'll remind you again, we are concluding on the 77WABC portion that you are listening to right now. For those of you that would like to hear the entire interview of which we will cover Jeff's book in part two, go to chuckgarcia.com or go to my YouTube channel. And Jeff, before we leave the airwaves for 77WABC, you have given such tremendous advice. We always ask ourselves, what do we want our listeners to think? What do we want them to feel? And what do we want them to do when the show is over? We have covered a lot of think. We have covered a lot of feel. What do you want the budding entrepreneur who is listening here to do with everything that you have just packaged? Well, you got to start. So at any given time, I've got six or seven business plans going. And keep in mind that ideas are cheap. The will to execute is expensive. And so start putting pen to paper and start talking with your friends, with people in the industry about your idea. Don't be afraid to share your idea. Anyone that sits there and says, oh, to share my idea, you got to sign an NDA. I'm like, okay, great. Whatever, man. I talk about my ideas openly all the time. All the time. Even when they're poking holes in it. 100%. Like I want as much feedback as humanly possible. I want to talk to the smartest people, people way smarter than me, people way smarter in specific areas. And I want them to poke holes because this is a brainstorming process. I want to put the idea out there. I want to find the flaw and I want to iterate again and again and again, because when the time comes for me to then formally found that company and move it forward, I want to make sure I have talked to as many people as possible. And that's what I want everybody listening to do. Talk to as many people as possible and take that first step. And that first step will be all the more likely to succeed if you have spent as much time as possible talking to as many people as possible before starting that journey. Thank you, Jeff. And I appreciate that. I uh, thank you again for coming on to Talk Radio 77 WABC on a climb to the top. For those of you who wish to hear about what is going to happen on January 1st, 2040, and maybe Radio City Music Hall or the Beekman, or maybe We'll be so virtual by then that stage won't matter, but Jeff will be on the stage to give that. Thank you for your contribution, Jeff. Thank you for having me. We are now in part two and Jeff, thank you. I really, it's, it's great to hear these lessons. I loved your book. Your book I'd never read a book like that. And, and what I, I particularly loved about the book is there are 10 chapters. 
and by your own admission, your favorite chapter was chapter 10. And you didn't write any of them, but other people did. Tell us about the book. Take us to the past. Sure. What was in your head? Why did you write it? And who did you write it for? So let me start with why I wrote it. So as somebody that was very focused in the on-demand labor world, again, work market is software that helps companies manage their freelancers. Everybody was always talking about, oh, the freelance economy is growing, the gig economy, the on-demand economy, whatever you want to call it. And everybody was just throwing statistics out that had no basis in fact. And it was very frustrating for a person grounded in evidence and grounded in history. It is very difficult to listen to conversations about the future of work that are grounded in neither history nor data. And so I thought, all right, you know what? I want to write, I want to write a book that really helps people understand the facts what is going on in the freelance economy, the gig economy, the on-demand economy. And that quickly evolved. You know, I say quickly in as much as, you know, it was about three years. But over the three years that I was writing the first iteration of the book, it became a book on the entire history of work because the conversation had started to move in the labor markets away from on-demand labor is the future of work to oh my gosh, there aren't going to be any jobs because the robots and AI are going to take all of our jobs. And that became the prevailing conversation. And again, people were just misquoting data. People were misquoting stories. They were making up, you know, predictions based on nothing. Right. And so I started to write the book about the entire history of work, including on demand, to help ground the conversation in an historic context as we look at the history of work, and to help ground the, day, the conversation in a data and evidence-based context as we predict the future of work. What was interesting, and I like you definitely emphasized context, that, that everything had to be put into it. But what I really liked the book, what I liked about the beginning of the book, you talked about the rise of. Yep. And, and there were three worlds, mechanization, electrification, and computerization. But is that giving birth to the rise of something we can't predict? So the framework that we talk a lot about in the book is we've gone through this change three times before. This change meaning a massive increase, a technological step function, I'll call it in the book, where the increases in productivity are unlike anything we've seen before and you correctly articulate mechanization, the beginning of mechanization, what we all talk about as the industrial revolution. But we went through it again with electrification. Suddenly you could run electricity through those machines. And then we went through it in the digital age, computerization. And in each of these times, Chuck, every time, there were people saying, oh, this is an unknown future and we're, they're never gonna be any jobs and it's terrible for the worker and everything's gonna be awful every time. And every time they were wrong. Every time we ended up with more jobs and a massively higher standard of living for society as a whole. And so as people sit here on the precipice of what some call the fourth industrial revolution, what I in the book call the first services revolution, we find the same doomsdayers. They are, oh my God, 50% of jobs are going to be eliminated and all these things. And look, is, is anything possible? Of course. But if you look at the data, if you look how companies adapt to change, how workers adapt to change, if you look at the counterbalancing forces and all the things that have happened every other time, it's just highly, highly, highly unlikely that we end up in a place where 50% of jobs are gone. And so it's that historic context and a data-driven context which gives me tremendous optimism about this first services revolution, but also makes sure that we are very eyes wide open in the fact that while every time we ended up with more jobs and a higher standard of living, that transition from point A to point B was not easy. Workers don't do transition well. Companies do it even more poorly. Society does transition terribly. Well, is that, is that why we're, we, I think, as a society, are not very good at predicting the future? We like to think we are, that we've got it all figured out. It just doesn't seem, maybe you've got that figured out. Well, look, 
as with almost everything I do, I always try to, you know, uh, context things in probabilities. There is certainly a percent chance that I am 100% wrong and everything's going to completely go one way or the other. Right. Uh, it's just, it's never happened before. And so I view it as highly unlikely that it'll happen this time. One of the wonderful things that I learned at business school were the five most dangerous words in business. This time, it is different. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good one. I really enjoyed reading about the history, and there are some things I didn't know, some very clever stories. They were really fun to read. But when I got to chapter 10, that was really cool. Talk to us about why you inserted that and all of those people. How did you ask them to contribute? Looking so, at you are 100% right. Uh, chapter 10 was my favorite chapter, not only because I didn't have to write it. <laughs> right. uh, you know, look, in running work market for 10 years, uh, in building that company, I had the opportunity to meet all of these amazing, amazing leaders in the world of work. People that ran large labor unions, people that ran large staffing firms, the heads of HR at some of the you know, major global companies, the people leading industry associations. And it occurred to me, you know what? I have my data-driven approach. I have the approach that I like, but I don't pretend that that is the only approach. And how cool would it be to get the point of view of what these people all think the world of work looks like in 2040? And so I came up with the idea, obviously based on the X prize, that I would personally put up a $10 million prize for whoever is the most correct. And I approached each one of them and just said, look, would you be willing to write? I mean, look, asking somebody else to write 10 pages for your book, that's it. That's a tough ask. Yes. And I will tell you, a lot more people said yes initially than um, we were able to get into the book. Mm -hmm. There were a number of people that put in submissions and the publisher and I just had to pick the 20 best. And that was what it was. And those were super difficult conversations to have to say, hey, I really appreciate you putting in all this effort, but you got cut. Right. Um, but the more interesting thing were the people whose companies wouldn't let them do it. And, oh, you know, interesting. You're not going to write that. Yeah. So, you know, the, you know, major automotive manufacturer, head of HR, major internet retailer that is currently dominating everything, head of uh, HR, was told no. Because uh, they were afraid to find out what that individual may have had to say? Well, you know, look, as a person that now works for one of the largest companies on the planet, I can appreciate that uh, you don't want your executives just, you know, writing things that aren't reviewed by PR and legal and a host of other things. Right. And so I don't think there was any upside for those companies. So, you know, I totally get it. Um, I should not have been as surprised as I was, but uh, I am super grateful and super excited for the 20 that uh, made it through. There were about uh, 40 submissions in uh, and the 20 that came out, I could not be happier with. There, as I was reading each of them, what I was really looking for, what are the common threads that I'm pulling out of here? And what I found refreshing, because what I teach at Columbia is communications and emotional intelligence to brilliant engineers. And a common theme in our class is engineering is easy. The people are hard. So I teach them the communication and the EQ, but they always revert back to, well, I'm an engineer. I have the mindset of an engineer. That's what I do. And this is anathema to them, particularly many of them that come from other countries that don't promote the soft skills. There were a few that really jumped out. What I loved what they talk about where it was the need, in spite of all of this technology, empathy, critical thinking, and creativity. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at LinkedIn, what do, what do many companies look for? They look for those three things. What did you find as you reviewed each? What did you take away as common threads? Well, I like the fact that so many people had so many different points of view, first mm -hmm. and foremost. You know, we had one author who had a very dystopian view Indeed. of society. Right. <laughs> a little depressing. Uh, yeah, yeah. We had one author. Honest. Yeah, <laughs> and one author that felt that's going to be pretty much the same. Yeah, like, you know, little yeah. change, little change. <laughs> right. uh, and we had a few people that were very optimistic about you know how society will uh, will look in 2040. 
so that was my favorite part. But I will certainly agree with your statement that when you think about the types of qualities like creativity and empathy, um, those are the things that study after study point to as the skills that will be in massive demand 20 years from now because they are the skills that a machine can't replicate. Right, you right. can't have build an AI engine to understand that. You can't build a robot to do those things. And so people are really emphasizing, you know, where the puck is going. Right. Well, that's a phenomenal takeaway to my students who are listening. I appreciate you want to be the great engineer and never do I say stop doing that. But what you're suggesting, Jeff, is the future of work. And then we'll get to the end of jobs. But the future of work while there is mechanization, electrification, and computerization, you talk about the human side. That still prevails, still has value. It still will have value in 2040? It will 100% have value in 2040. You know, look, we obviously don't fully know how the adoption of robots and AI will impact jobs. We can make our best guesses. But what we do know is the need for human connection will always remain. The need for leadership, the need for empathy, the need for compassion, those are things that are always gonna drive behavior. And you know, you can look at something as simple as the waiters and waitresses in the United States of America, or quite frankly, anywhere in the world. The technology to remove that job has existed for 10 years. Right. You can 100% have an iPad or some similar tablet on a table with the menu, person can press what they want, the order can go into the kitchen and a runner or a machine, quite frankly, can bring out that food. And at Delta Airlines at LaGuardia Airport, you do that. Fair point. <laughs> and so, you know, you can eliminate those jobs and yet we haven't, right? We haven't because people want to go to those restaurants. We certainly want to go to them right now, given the fact that very few people have been <laughs> to the restaurants nice. time. <laughs> but people want that experience. And so efficiency doesn't always win out. I'd like to conclude because what hit me was the title. And I was like, wow, that was very provocative. The end of. Sure. Let the listeners know, and then I want to give them a call to action. Where can we find the book? Recite. I want to hear it from you. The title of the book. The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. We covered the rise of, but the end of work? Really? So I will tell you, you know, in some ways, Chuck, I don't know that I regret the title. I certainly, you know, didn't know that I'd be releasing the book at a time when nearly 40 million Americans have lost their jobs. Oh, wow. I didn't say it that way, but I appreciate that, that statement. It's something I've thought about a lot. Um, and the title was always meant to be ironic. You know, right. I am not predicting the end of jobs, as many right. people right. in the future of work business are saying. I believe there will be no net job losses. What I am talking about is the end of the job as we knew it, right? We knew a job that was a one office, one manager, nine to five job. That is the context in which most work occurred for the last 100 years that job is slowly going away. We are moving to fluid, team-based, always-on, work-from-anywhere jobs. Right. And that transition is the end of the job as we know it. And so that's what the title was meant to evoke, not technological unemployment, not, you know, obviously, you know, an economic deep recession or whatever we are dealing with now. It was supposed to be evocative of the way the world of work is changing. Well, that's the reason I put it out there, because again, from the very beginning of the book, you talked about context, and you didn't talk about the elimination of jobs necessarily. There were, we used to drive on the Long Island Expressway to your home, and we'd roll down our window, and we'd give somebody some money. Those people are not there anymore. Do we feel bad that we eliminated toll takers? Because now, you don't even stop at a toll booth. We go right through. And a lot of what I picked up on the book as you were reading through that was work. If there is an elimination, there is the creation of the things that we can't possibly predict. And, and is that the way you were thinking about it? That is the way history would show that it has always happened. Right. And so, you know, look, I don't pretend to know exactly how any of this will play out. Right. Nobody does. 
but we can look at history and the way things have always happened. We can look at the data in terms of the percentage of jobs that have their component tasks as repetitive high volume tasks. And we can say, oh, okay, well, when we look at that, there are not that many jobs that can be fully automated. You know, I look at something like the ATM, one of my favorite examples. So when the ATM came out in, uh, it was actually invented on September 2nd, 1969 by a chemical bank uh, out in Rockville Center was the first ATM. And by 1995, the ATM was now in every bank branch. And at the time, there were 500,000 bank tellers in the United States. And what do you think everyone predicted about bank teller jobs in the United States? End of the teller. End of the teller. There are going to be no more tellers. Right. Do you know how many tellers are at work in the United States right now, COVID notwithstanding? How many? 600,000. <laughs> right. Now, is that to say that the tellers got rid of the repetitive high volume task of taking money in and giving money out and moved out from behind the glass and now have an iPad and now upselling you on insurance products and investment products and loan products, car loans, mortgages? Yeah, they are doing that. But the number of tellers per branch has dropped from 21 to 13. The number of bank branches has nearly doubled because of banking deregulation. And so for anyone to make a simple prediction belays the mass complexity of this situation. Is there anybody that's gonna sit now with ATMs getting more and more capable, with online banking becoming more and more the norm? Is there anyone that's gonna predict another 20% growth over the next 25 years in the teller jobs? Definitely not. But to make a prediction and say, oh, well, the ATM is getting better and can cross sell and most people go online. So therefore, the bank teller jobs are going to be gone. I, I won't make that prediction. Right. And anybody that does is not addressing the mass complexity that involves the competitive landscape, technology, human interaction and what the customer wants, the regulatory frameworks. All of these things have impacts. Before we deliver the call to action and where they can find the book. Who do you want or who do you believe should read this book? So the book, as you know, I said, was initially designed to help bring clarity to a discussion around the future of work. Mm -hmm. And so certainly those people that are helping to craft the future of work were the initial target audience. But as I thought about and then really started to getting uh, pen to paper and writing this book or fingers to keyboards, as the case may be, uh, it really is the workers to understand the journey that they're going to go on because everyone is going to face change and hearing the stories about how workers in the past have adapted to those changes, how the counterbalancing forces of unions, the social safety net and the regulatory framework uh, have in the past served to counterbalance the increase in power of companies. I think those are important things to understand because I talk a lot about nobody knows how this future will unfold, but it is collectively ours to create. And so if we want a society that has a very different tax policy, a very different social safety net structure, if we want a different kind of union structure that is more adapted to the 21st century, we collectively can do that. Right? We get to vote for the representatives that will put in place the regulations, the tax policy, the social policies that we want. And so it's important to understand for every worker the context in which they face themselves, what has been done historically to bring balance back to this equation. Because this transition, while I am incredibly optimistic about the end point, because again, it, five most dangerous words in business, it is. It, it will be different this time. I don't think it will be different this time. And so I am conscious, though, of the difficulty of the transition that everybody's going to go through. And the most important thing for workers to think about is the reskilling and upskilling that is going to become a common part of every worker's journey. Yeah, and I think what a lot of, particularly for my incoming students, what a lot of messages they are hearing is half of you are going to be in jobs, let's say, for the undergraduates four years from now, for the grad students 18 months from now, in jobs that don't exist. And as, as I read the, the, the future in chapter 10 of each of those, it was interesting to, to see what, if, if it's 
not traditionally go into an office? What is everybody doing? At least in my mind, I was trying to craft a vision. What will the work world look like? And it's fascinating to see who is going to win 10 million bucks, 7,166 days from now. I'm not going to put you on the spot for any predictions, but I, I, I really appreciate that you did that portion of it. it was a, as much as I love the first nine chapters, it was just really cool to see what people had to say about or to put themselves on the line, recognizing nine of them could or 10 of them could be completely wrong. Sure. Wouldn't that be cool? I think it would be great. And it is likely. Right. It is likely. But as with the business plan, I don't know where they're wrong. I don't know how they're wrong. All we can see is how the world unvolves. Uh, and that's a, that's a good way to conclude it. And I love how you said that your business plan is wrong. Where can, where can, where, when will the book be released and where can our listeners and viewers find it? Uh, the book is available for pre-sale right now uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. Uh, the book is fully released on June 2nd. Uh, we currently sit at uh, the number one new release in labor and unemployment and HR and all the categories on Amazon in which the book touches. And so it's just been super, super exciting to go through this. Uh, and I'm super grateful to have gotten the chance to spend time with you on the show. Uh, same here. Well, you know, from one author to another, I really appreciate what you did. Millions of people want to write their books, but very few who actually do. And I want to give a shout out to my friend Yitzhak Satflas, who his radio show appears an hour after mine on Sunday nights. When I released my book called A Climb to the Top, I was on his show right around the release date. And I'm grateful for that, Jeff. I hope one day you will pay that forward. And if you have a fellow author in your podcast or whatever that is, I hope you will give that to the next author. You can count on it. Yeah, thank you very much. So I want to give one more shout out to Phyllis Wald. Uh, Phyllis, I have to say, if you are listening, when I was reading the testimonials to the book, I totally cracked up. And it was really funny. This is the best book on the best subject ever written. Thank you for that, for making me laugh. And Jeff, thank you for coming on to the show and for contributing to A Climb to the Top. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.